you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. As you can tell from the text, this is not a Mother's Day sermon. Not that that's all the time wrong, or um, it's not worthy of mentioning our mothers. I think that's a, a great thing to do. I will tell you that I think there's probably a lot of churches this morning that are probably on the wrong side of that line, where that when we meet here together, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be worshiping the Lord. And so we want our focus to be there. Um, I think it's right to honor our mothers. I think the Bible teaches that. But we also want to honor the Lord who created all. And so we're going to look at Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. The title of the message is Ungodliness, Unrighteousness, and Suppressing the Truth. Ungodliness, Unrighteousness, and Suppressing the Truth. So even from the title, you can tell this is not a let's lift everybody's spirits and have a, a wonderful time this morning sermon. On the other hand, it really should be in a lot of ways, and you'll see as we go through why that that's the case. So let's read first, verse 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. So that's our text for this morning, and we want to start by linking this text with where we were last time. You remember the message last time was on verse 16 and 17, "...for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So it's important for us to point out that there is the word for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's almost inexcusable. If you have an NIV version Bible somewhere, you go look this up, they leave that out completely. It just completely separates the two texts. But in most versions, you see that in verse 18, when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that ties these two passages together. So Everything that Paul is going to say, his understanding of sin and unrighteousness and all the things that are going on, the, the fact that uh, men do not see God as God, all of those things, he said, is the reason why he's saying it's so important 
that the gospel message is there. He's linking the two things together. So the order is important because we want the focus to be on the gospel. Uh, He doesn't mention the gospel for the sake of sin. He mentions sin for the sake of the gospel. So our understanding that we will find today about sin and about how uh, how just debase and, and, and horrible that the creation has been in um, turning away from God, it points us to the gospel and that we need a righteousness. When we talk about unrighteousness and ungodliness, that shows us that we need a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. So we could have had this message first and then gone backwards and then talked about the gospel, and we'll still do that today. I don't think you should ever mention the unrighteousness of man without going back to the gospel and showing that there is an answer, that we do have a righteousness that's provided for us. But uh, we do see that Paul starts with the gospel, and now he's going to go and talk about this unrighteousness and ungodliness of men and the suppression of the truth, which is also a big part of this today. So why is it that we need the gospel? Well, we need the gospel because... Uh, God's wrath is right now, currently, being poured out on ungodliness and unrighteousness. And one day, even in a bigger way, that wrath will be revealed from heaven. So this is an already and and not yet uh, type of situation in that God's wrath is already being revealed against unrighteousness. And there's a day coming when that will increase. So the reason we need to reveal God's righteousness to us in the gospel uh, and and give it that and that we have that gift through faith is that we are unrighteous and suppress the truth and unrighteousness without the grace of God acting on us first uh, so so that's the hope of the gospel and the power of the gospel to save in that it reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith so the three points for this morning we'll first look at verse 18 God's wrath revealed then we'll look at verses 19 through 23 about what people, what about people who haven't heard that question? What about people who haven't heard? How, is that, how does that affect the situation with God's wrath? And then lastly, exchanging the glory of God. Really sad part of the text this morning. Exchanging the glory of God in verses 22 and 23. So that's the kind of outline that we want to follow. So let's jump in in verse 18. God's wrath Revealed For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In the ESV version, that says, and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I actually think that's a better word. Hold it doesn't sound as, as, um, as accurate as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So... We'll look at kind of two parts of this verse and take them one at a time. The wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then we'll look at the part where it also says that in addition to that, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So those two things. So God's wrath revealed in these two things. The fact that there's ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and also that uh, we are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the unrighteousness of mankind... I don't think I have to do a lot of description for you uh, or for us to really think on that very hard. If you look around at the world today, would you say that the world is full of unrighteousness and ungodliness? I think it's not hard at all uh, to ascertain that fact. It's a problem 
Uh, and this is a problem because our God is a holy and a just God. So unrighteousness is something that he cannot tolerate and will not tolerate. And his wrath goes out against sin and unrighteousness. He cannot tolerate unrighteousness, untruth, or irreverence. And all of those things are included in this verse. So then we would ask, well, how is the wrath of God being revealed? And so I want to talk about that. I've already mentioned it once, but notice that the word it is revealed is the very same as, and the tense is the same as in verse 17. So in verse 17 about the gospel, it says the righteousness of God is being revealed. So it, it's, it's a present tense uh, verb there, and, and in both cases, it's present tense, continuous action. In other words, it's happening now, and it's continuing to happen. So the righteousness of God is being revealed now through the gospel and will continuously be revealed through the gospel. And the unrighteousness of man and the wrath of God for that is also happening now and it will continue to happen. Now, it's also true that there's a day of wrath that is coming. And I don't think that's completely foreign to this text, but it's not really the point. The, the point more of this text is the wrath of God that is... is um, is own unrighteousness and ungodliness right now in the present. But we all do know there's a day of wrath coming. You remember the famous sermon? Payday someday, right? There's going to be a payday someday. Well, that's the truth, folks. That's the truth. People live as though that's not the truth. They live as though, and, and it's, it, we do that in so many ways, and we'll get into that a little bit as we go through this text. But the human nature itself doesn't want to think about future issues we want to live in the moment. We want to live in the present. And what does the society now encourage us to do more than anything else, right? I, I, I'm going to be honest, and I hope this tape doesn't go out to TCPS people, but I have a valedictorian and a salutatorian, and those two speeches this year couldn't be as different. I mean, and I'm not going to say which one's which, but, but one of them wrote a dissertation on YOLO. You only live once. I, I, it, it's the saddest thing I've ever read. It's, it's all about, man, you better do it now, and, and everything's about living in the moment, and don't worry about the future, and you just be you, and you do you, and, and everything's going to be great because you're just going to be your true self. And I, I, I was just reading it, and I was just, this is sad. And then the other young lady uh, wrote a speech, and hers is based on Psalm 23 about the Lord, her shepherd, and, and all the... It's just a night and day difference in, in these two approaches but human nature itself says, don't worry about the wrath to come. Live in the moment. Live now. And Paul is saying God's wrath is already being revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And there is a day coming when that judgment will be final. There will be a final outpouring of wrath. But we need to remember that God's wrath is also present. So how is God's wrath? How can we see God's wrath against sin currently, presently in the world that we live in? Well, the first one and the most obvious one is something that's a result of the fall uh, in the garden, and that's the universal truth of human death. So the universal truth of human death. We are all sinners. We fell uh, in Adam in the garden. Not only that, but we have more than just a sin nature, right? Is there anybody in here who's just, just worried about your sin just because of Adam, or have you added to that with sins of your own? You know, we've all added to that with sins of our own, and what did God say about that? If you don't keep my commandments, you don't keep the law, and if you are separated from me and fellowship with me, what's going to happen? He said, you will surely die. And that happened. 
Adam died spiritually immediately, and he began to die physically. And so every one of us in this room, that's just a reality that we're going to face, is that death is real, and it's something that all humans will face. Uh, as, and, and we see that very plainly. It's something that, that's something that, that not even an atheist can deny, right? We're all going to face death. Uh, they can try to uh, bug that system all they want, and people do. I mean, that's, that's probably the greatest goal of, of mankind uh, that's always been and always will be, is that they're always trying to find ways to extend life or to create life, all of those things, but we cannot do that. Death is a reality, and it's because of sin. We need to understand that. Death is not just part of nature. It is because of sin that we must go through physical Death. So you can see that death is then seen as a judgment, as uh, something that is a result of sin. So when Adam sinned, he died immediately spiritually, and he began to die physically. So how else can we see the wrath of God uh, against this unrighteousness and ungodliness and suppression of the truth? Well, that's also in suffering. You know that God created all things. And what did he say at the end? He says, good. It's very good. All the things that God created were good. What marred creation? It was sin that marred creation. It was unrighteousness that marred creation. I think it's going to be a really amazing thing when all of this is wrapped up. We've already talked about it. There's a day of wrath coming, and it's a day of wrath for some people, but what is it for us? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is when, this is when we're going to have immense joy and those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, it's going to be a day of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in that, isn't it an amazing thing to think about that when all of that happens, creation is going to be the biggest reset button that ever got hit, right? It's going to go back to the way that God designed it originally, that, that all things will be made new. We won't have to worry about sin and suffering and all those things. All that will be past us in that time. But for now, we live in a sinful world, in a world that is fallen. And because we live in a fallen world, there's sufferings in this present time. But we have good news about that as Christians. In, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 18, what is it that Paul says? He said, I would tell you that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed uh, in you. So that's, that's the perspective that we have to have. But I think it's also right for us to understand and acknowledge and accept that we live. You, you heard the old preacher say in the low ground of sin and sorrow, right? Uh, this is a place of suffering right now because of sin. Sin has caused this to be a place of, of suffering and, and pain and all the things that we go through, the sicknesses that, that rack our bodies and all of those things are a result of sin in the world and the judgment of God for sin. Now, third, we see the depraved state of humanity. And you say, well, how does that link with the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God, and we'll see this later in the text, it says in multiple places, we're not going to get to this part of the text today, we're going to save it for the next time, but it says in multiple places that God gave them over, and then God gave them over, and then God gave them over. God continually allowed for for human beings that are lost that are enemies of his to continue to be depraved and that depravity really knows no end it just they keep look look at where we are as a society today 
Now, we're celebrating Mother's Day today, so I will get Mother's Day into my sermon this morning. Here we go. So we're celebrating Mother's Day today across the country. That's based on the idea, right, that there's a father and a mother and there's children. That should be very basic. That should be something that we learn from the Bible, but also just nature itself. What happens in almost all the cases in nature? The same thing. (laughs) The same thing. So nature itself tells us this. But yet we have been given over and given over and given over to unrighteousness and ungodliness and suppression of the truth to the point that even suppression of the truth of something as simple as mothers and fathers and male and female, and that's really the point of this text. I'm giving away the whole thing right there. That's really what Paul is saying here. He's saying he's going to, in our next message, we're going to talk about kind of the results of everything that we're talking about today. And one of those results is that even that order of male and female got, got um, just uh, turned into something that it was not supposed to be. And so that is, that's what he says about how depraved and the depraved state of humanity is evidence of the wrath of God against sin. So that's just three ways that the wrath of God is being revealed now in this time against sin, ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, uh, and the fact that we're all going to face death. But in that, and I want—I think this is very important to point out, and it's kind of a small point, but I think it's really important to, to point out. So when we say the wrath of God is revealed against these things, does that mean that God treats everyone right now according to his wrath in all times and always? Can you imagine what the earth would be like if that was the case? I mean, this place would not be somewhere you would want to live, for sure. Um, that is not the case. There is mercy of God even against those that are not his children in the sense that, you know, um, verses like that he sends, uh, he sends his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not all judgment. There's some mercy even in the judgment of God for a season. But that's going to come to an end. And that, that's, that's, that's the, the scary hard part to think about is that that uh, long-suffering, I think, is the better word for it. That long-suffering of God against unrighteousness and ungodliness in this world and the fact that he sends rain on the just and the unjust, that's going to come to an end. Uh, so uh, even in that, we see there's, there's a, a ray of mercy and some long-suffering of God that we see in that. So... That's the first part of this, this text in, in verse 18 is just simply the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Just the fact that men are not holy as God is holy and they are not, don't have righteousness of their own to bring before him. Now secondly, at the end of the verse, it says, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So I, I want to title this part of point number one suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Like I said, some versions use the words uh, suppressing. I think it's a better, better word. So what does it mean to suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Well, I'm going to tell you something. This is something you want to know what almost all human beings have a really good ability to do is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We just have this. You know, so some of you in this room may be good artists. Some of you may be good singers. Maybe you're good at something else. So you have these talents, these skills. Well, Human beings have a really good talent and skill to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So have you ever heard of a spin doctor? What's a spin doctor? 
Well, in politics, this is the guy who his whole job is to kind of, you know, do this job and put his finger up in the wind. Where's the public opinion going? And how can I spin what we're trying to do into a vein that everybody will be accepting of it? So I'm going to take something that they really don't want to do or they don't like, and I'm going to spin it in a way that they think that it's okay. That's what spin is. It's in politics, it would be people who live by the polls, right? They take a poll, and wherever the wind's going, well, that's what I'm going to go. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to spin everything in that direction. I used to watch Bill O'Reilly, the no-spin zone. You know, he claimed that in his show, there was no spin. It's not true. <laughs> you know, I'm just telling you, this is something that even when you think you're not doing it, you're, you're probably doing it to an extent. We want to spin things the way that it, it fits best for us. But... Like we said, we know that this, this is something that even as a child of God, we do it a lot of times. You ever tried to justify yourself or justify something that you wanted to do? And, you know, you'll search all over the Bible looking for some text that you can twist into making it happen. You know, we, we do it. We do it a lot. Well, that's really what suppressing the truth in unrighteousness is really all about. It's when we know the truth, but we suppress it. We push it down. And we say, no, we don't, we don't want to acknowledge that. We want to have our own truth so the issue this morning is about how people like us who are bent from birth we are we have a natural innate push in us and a desire in us to suppress the truth can get free from that and be saved from that and the only way to do that is to point you back to romans 16 and 17 it's the only way you're not gonna be able to control that on your own you have to be given what a new heart a new spirit there has to be a new creation done in you for you not to suppress the truth we cannot overcome that that's one of the biggest differences between us and a lot of people that are worshiping in this country today is that we believe that for us not to suppress the truth god has to act and others say that you can kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you can overcome that well i hate to tell you you can't overcome that uh, the suppression of the truth in your mind and heart must be overcome by god himself so for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness so the next question we would have to ask we've talked about kind of why this is the case but what is the truth then that we suppress well of course that can be a lot of things um, we've talked about that a little bit some of the things that we might want to suppress but paul has something very specific in mind when he says they suppress the truth and it's, it's very specific. So what is the truth then uh, that we suppress in unrighteousness? Because that which is known about God, the truth being suppressed is something known about God, is evident within them, for God made it evident to them since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, the, his eternal power and Godhead, his divine nature is another way to say that, have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that were made so that they are without excuse. So the objective truth about God that we suppress is God himself. Isn't that a scary thing? We don't want to see God for who he really is and how he really is and how we must relate to him. This, this is just such a huge thing when you think about just religion, just religion itself. Why does people's theology get mixed up? Why is it that there are those that I just talked about who believe that it's up to you? You know, I was reading um, 
on a church's website this weekend, and I told Becca, I said, well, I'm proud of them for one thing. At least they just come out and say it. You know, a lot of Armenians, they don't, they don't like to say it's up to man. Well, on this website, he said, look, God did this part, and here's your part. And this is the part that you've got to accomplish or you're going to hell. And there's all these things. And I thought, well, at least they're honest. You know, they're just putting it out there. A lot of people try to hide that, but they don't even try to hide it. So the, the truth that is under consideration here that we are suppressing an unrighteousness is God himself, his eternal power and Godhead or his nature, who God is, what God's position is in the universe. But we... Uh, the response we're supposed to have to this as well, we also suppress that because it says that they knew God, but they didn't honor him or they didn't glorify him as God or give thanks. So isn't that amazing that what Paul is saying here, the truth that you're suppressing is really about God himself. How many people do you think have the view of God that, that is really correct in all of his attributes, that God has wrath against sin? that God is holy, that God is just, that all of those things are true about God. No, they want to suppress that and have their own view of God. I want to make a Jesus up that fits my life, and then I'll worship that. Well, that's listen, that is what's wrong with most of religion today. They want a Jesus that's of their own making, and Paul says that is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The truth about God is that God is who he is as he has revealed himself. We don't get to make God into who we want. God reveals himself to us as he is. <clears throat> and we must take him on those terms. So here's the truth that we suppress apart from God's grace in our lives. Well, before I wrap that up, one really important point is, and, and this is not really in the text, but I think it's important for us to mention, the gospel, we're saying that God is revealed in creation. So, right, he says you're suppressing this truth and unrighteousness because God's revealed in creation, so therefore you should know him. And we're going to unpack that a little more later on. But that's really the, the purpose of the text. Well, guess what's not? There is something that is not revealed in nature by itself, and that's the gospel. The gospel is not revealed in nature by itself. You can't understand what it means, all of, what all of salvation means without the gospel itself. Uh, nature doesn't reveal that to you, but what he says here is, the existence of God, there's no excuse. Nature itself reveals the existence of God, his power and his Godhead. His nature is revealed through the creation itself, but the gospel is not. 1 Corinthians 1.18, very familiar with that text, I'm sure, but let's turn over there, and I'm, I don't want to misquote it at all. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that truth. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So you see that um, the, even in nature, nature itself doesn't reveal the gospel. That's something that has to be spiritually discerned. There has to be an act of God on us before we can even understand the gospel at all. That's a spiritual thing that must be revealed to us through the gospel. So uh, we can see God and we can understand God. And Paul says there's no excuse for those. That's his, and we're going to kind of unpack all this as we go forward. But Paul says there's no excuse about who God is himself, his character, and his nature. Now, I want to sum that up. So here's the truth that we suppress apart from God's grace in our lives. So unless there's been a work of grace on you, this is the truth that man in his natural state would suppress against God. The truth is there is a God. 
He is the creator of all things, and he is not a God, but the God. He is powerful, more powerful than all others. He made all things. He is eternal because there's nothing outside of him that could bring him into existence. Therefore, we exist to display his glory and not compete with him for glory. We must exist in dependence upon him. We do not supply him. He supplies us, and therefore, we are to live in constant gratitude to him. Now, the gospel's not really in that, right? But who God is is in that. And all of those things that I just said, Paul said that can be revealed to you through nature itself that there is a God, and it's amazing to me, even these scientists are starting to figure this out a little bit. Intelligent design, see, they can't say creation, so now they're kind of taking, well, we're going to kind of, <coughs> it's pretty clear that there, there's some kind of intelligent design. Now, they may believe that it's an alien space species, or that, that, that who knows what they believe, but even most scientists are starting to admit this is too complicated to have happened randomly. It's just too complicated. So what, what Paul is telling you right here, science is reaffirming and saying, this is too complicated for it not to be, there not to be a higher power that has created all of this. Um, that, is, that is really what Paul's message is in that, that section. Now, we want to move on to our second point. So the first one is God's wrath revealed on those two areas, the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men and on the suppression of the truth. Now, secondly, in verses 19 through 23, we're going to talk about what about the people who haven't heard. So the question pops up, and you say, I have an objection to this. I want to raise my hand and object because you're saying that these people are, are being judged, and they haven't heard about who God is. Now, we got into this a little bit on the suppression of the truth, but now we're going to really unpack what Paul says about why there is no excuse. So what about the people who haven't heard? Well, Paul says they're without excuse. That's the answer. That's the objection that Paul's going to answer. He does this a lot in his writing. He brings up something, and he says, now let me tell you why that can't be. Here's the answer to the question. So let's read verses 19 through 23. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So Paul's going to answer this objection primarily in verses 19 through 21, but then we're going to also go on down into those other verses for some, some extra, some, some evidence for what Paul is saying. Uh, now, the first thing, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take kind of four things in Paul's argument here. And we're going to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. We're going to say, first, what's Paul's answer? What does Paul say is the answer to the question? Well, the answer is you're without excuse. So let's start there. Uh, the first part of this section is that we are without excuse. This doesn't take a lot of explanation. Paul says in verse 20, so that they are without excuse. In other words, his final answer to the objection is, is that this objection is not valid. God 
is um, God can, can, can uh, his wrath can be poured out and you are without excuse because nature itself reveals to you that there is a God. Are there people in the world who have an excuse or a warrant to protest the wrath of God against them? Paul says no. No one has an excuse. Everyone is guilty and deserves the wrath of God. I was kind of talking about this with some people this week, and I said maybe my view of the sovereignty of God is just really high, but that's not even an objection that I would bring up. To me, it's just kind of like, well, if God, you know, it doesn't matter if they have that excuse or not. God is sovereign, and, and it, but that's, that's not even the case. He has revealed himself to them through nature itself. Now, secondly, so how does he argue for that conclusion? What does he, come, what does he, what does he bring as evidence that there is no excuse? Well, we're going to kind of work backwards. So the first thing we're going to talk about is that they did not glorify God. So Paul's conclusion is there's no excuse. The, the fullness of his divine glory and the extent of our dependence on his power are suppressed everywhere, so all men everywhere are guilty and without <coughs> excuse. And because they knew him and did not glorify him, that's evidence. You see, if they know who God is, and yet they still do not treat him as God, they do not honor him, they do not glorify him is what the text says, then that is heaping onto themselves uh, the wrath of God because they knew who God was. We said that the excuse is, is not valid. There is no excuse. Secondly, the fact that they did know him and they didn't honor him as God shows the, the very truth of that. Now, third, we kind of back up another step. They did know God. That's the, that's the answer. That's the real answer to the question. So they did know God. Go back in our text, um, and he says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, being understood by the things that are made. It says, clearly seen. And then verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So the answer is, it's kind of a false premise to start with. They did know who God is because of creation itself. Now, they can suppress that, and those who are not born again are going to suppress that, that truth, but it's readily revealed in creation itself. So they did know God and who he was. Uh, now, that brings us to the final, the final thing, and I just mentioned it, but God made himself evident. So not only is it evident in creation, it says God revealed it to them. Isn't that amazing? God revealed it to them. He himself, that which is known about God is evident among them, for God made it evident to them. So God himself has revealed him, he has revealed himself through the creation, and it's innate in everything that he created. So he says that it's clearly known by those things that were created. It's clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. All of his creation can tell that there's a God by looking at creation itself. So that's really explained in the middle of verse 20, being understood by the things that are made. God's eternal power and divine nature, what, we can, what can be known of God outside of, uh, of a spiritual enlightenment, can be known by God because of the creation 
of all things, and it, and it has to be understood through what has been made. God made it evident to mankind. That means that God did something to make himself known. The knowledge of God didn't just happen coincidentally. It, it God made a provision for it. Now, what does God do to make himself evident? This is one of the most beautiful parts of this passage that I never knew before studying it this time. Sometimes when you start studying language, you see things that you can't see just in the English version. So in verse 20, <coughs> when it says that God is understood through what has been made, that phrase, what has been made, uh, that's one Greek word, and the Greek word is poema. Poema. It's where we get the word poem. So, this is kind of what Paul is saying. God revealed himself in creation because creation is a poem about God. Isn't that beautiful? God's creation itself is God writing a poem revealing himself to you. It is his work, his, his uh, message that he has. It's his creation. The other place in the Bible where that wor word is used is for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them Ephesians 2 10 so the universe and everything in it is God's work of art the point is that in the poem there is a manifest design and intention and wisdom and power and purpose I think that word is really important there's purpose so you know randomly I love this uh, illustration. It says, randomly, the wind might blow in the sand, and it might look like something to you. It might look like, but can the wind write a poem? No, the wind can't write a poem. It can't be that specific. It can't reveal itself through. So it's not something random. It is purposefully. God created and made, and the universe is a poem about who he is. So God has revealed himself. He says, the, the, the trump card of why that you are without excuse is because God has revealed himself through creation. That is something that he has done in an active way by the creation itself. Now, the last thing we want to look at this morning is exchanging the glory of God. Exchanging the glory of God in verses 22 and 23. So Paul's working his way on down. He's talked about the wrath of God uh, against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and against their suppression of the truth. Then he talks about how that there is no excuse for those who say, well, you might say, well, I haven't heard about God. God didn't reveal himself to me. No, God did reveal himself to you through creation. Uh, it's clearly seen in creation. So we take that excuse off the table. Now he gets down to verse 22 and he says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So we're going to look at some things about this um, and, and kind of formally unpack it. But first, just to start off, I think it's important for us to think about this. So when you read that text, what's the first thing your mind goes to? Maybe it's the golden calf, right? You remember that story in the Old Testament? You say, well, yeah, I remember that. They... They made a calf out of gold. They were worshiping that thing. Isn't that, isn't that dumb? You know, I'd never do that in a million years. Or maybe you think about just idolaters, just people who are not godly at all, and, and they worship little statues of a little you know, chubby monk, and, and they have to pray to that thing. And they're just making an image, and they're worshiping this image. Or maybe you think about icons, or you think about 
Maybe you think, but you're probably thinking like, well, that's not me. I don't do that. I, I wouldn't, I would never do that. The truth is, yes, you would. <laughs> yes, we would do. And we do it all the time. Anytime that something takes the place of God in our life, that is an idol. That is something that we have created of our own making that is not worshiping what we should be worshiping, which is the true God. <coughs> we talk, um, we talk a lot about the glory of God, and the glory of God uh, is what's at stake in, in this situation. When it says professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God, of the uncorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible man. It makes no sense when we say it that way, but yet so many times we're guilty of the same thing. So when we look at this, we exchange the glory of God for an of the incorruptible God for an image. So one of the great problems in that is that what we are making of the glory of God. The reality of the issue is in my life and in your life and in this culture and in this country and especially in the times in which we live, this has become more and more the case where we exchange the glory of God for things that are, are corruptible, for things that are... And, and what the rest of this text is going to show us when we get to the end of the chapter is some of the specific things and the ways we're doing that so we're going to get to that uh, in the next message but the first thing he says about this is that they are vain in their imaginations so what does that mean when he says vain in their imaginations um, another uh, interpretation of that could be that they're futile futile in their uh, speculations or futile in their imaginations this means that our focus turns from, what, what are you if you're vain? What does a vain person do? It's all about self, right? I love the mirror. I like to look at myself in the mirror. I'm vain. It's all about me and me looking good, and it's all, all about my glory. <coughs> well, that's exactly what it means, that their, their attention has been turned from glorifying God to glorifying self. They profess themselves to be wise, and they became fools because they exchanged the glory of God of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. So there's vanity involved in this. And when that happens, all your thinking will become futile and empty and have no lasting significance. You know, if you're a vain person, what's one of the things that, that usually you're all about? And, and somebody's already said it. We're about self. We're about your looks, probably. Is that an eternal thing? Is there any eternality to the way your body looks? When you, the way you look at yourself in a mirror? I promise you it's not it's going to change. You know, so all, some of us know that all too well. That's not something that's eternal. That's not something that has lasting significance. So we, we worry about things that have no lasting significance instead of the glory of God, which has eternal significance and never changes. The second thing it says, their foolish hearts were darkened. They became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So what does this mean for our hearts to be darkened? Well, it means that the only light that the heart can have is something from outside. Our hearts are, we are dead in trespasses and trespassing sin naturally. The only way that there is light to fill our heart is when God, through the Holy Spirit, comes in and he gives light where there was nothing but darkness. So when it says their foolish uh, hearts were darkened, it means that 
they, they can't even, un there's, a, there's a sense in which they cannot understand and see God because they have a dark heart. And the we understand that the only way that that changes is for God himself to act and reveal the glory of God to you in, in your dark heart. That's the only way that that happens. This is not something that you can do on your own. This must be done by God. Now, third, even though um, we know better than this, the exchange itself to exchange things that are corruptible for that which is, uh, or that which is incorruptible to that which is corruptible, is foolish. But to the world, it looks wise. So he's kind of pointing out here that when he says professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. To the world, this exchange looks like it's wise. So when people are all about their money and all about their um, their looks and all of the things in this life, when they're all about that, to some people, they're going to look wise, right? They're rich. Maybe they've had cosmetic surgery and they look really nice or whatever. Maybe that looks good from the outside, <coughs> but the exchange is foolish even if it looks wise. He said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fool so paul is emphasizing the difference in value between the real and the copy i think that's a, a really good way to put it you're bartering god for the image of an image of an image a copy of a copy of a copy uh, so we we live in a dying and a sick culture and you'll hear you know people say they, they don't even recognize that they don't see the corruptible nature of all of these things and it's really hard here not to jump into the last section of this scripture so some of this is going to make more sense when we move on in the next text but Paul is emphasizing the if infinite difference in the value between the real and the copy and he shows this exchange is foolish by observing that the glory of God is incorruptible and man is corruptible they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for a likeness uh, an image of corruptible man so corruptible means perishable. God is eternal. And so surely those two things, we would be able to see the value in that. But sadly, we don't. Uh, we, we don't see that that value is, is very different. And like I said, this is going to make a lot more sense when we move on to the end of the text. So really what, what he's saying here is there's a, there's a balance sheet and people are putting more stock into things that are corruptible than they are into God who is incorruptible. Now, that reminded me 100% of Philippians chapter 3. You remember what Paul said there? He gives this really long resume, and to be honest, it's really impressive, right? I mean, Paul had a really impressive resume, way better than mine. Um, so he has this really impressive resume, and he says all of these things, you know, I'm Hebrew of the Hebrews, I've done this, I've done this, I, this is what I've done, all of these really impressive things, and he says, you know what? All of it means absolutely nothing in fact he said it was dumb and he said i have to take all of that and i have to move it into the category of when you have a profit loss sheet anybody who's ever run a business hopefully you know what that is you know a profit loss sheet he moved it over in the loss category and he said the only thing that i can put in the profit category is jesus christ because that's incorruptible that is things that are of ultimate significance um this is um we're going to go on to the end of the chapter the next time, and we'll see. So I like to sometimes have a practical application at the end. I'm going to save that because that's really what the end of the, the chapter is, is 
practically applying these principles to issues that are actually very, very current to our, our current times right now. So we'll go on to the end of the chapter next time, and we'll see some of the end results that happen when ungodliness and unrighteousness and dark hearts exchange the glory of God for the things of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, not only in nature itself, uh, that you are God, uh, that you are sovereign over all the things that you've made, uh, who you are uh, through creation itself. But God, we thank you that even more than that, you have revealed yourself through the gospel to us and to your son, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished on the cross for us. We thank you that uh, through nature we can see that there's a God, but through the gospel we see that there's a way of salvation, that you have provided a righteousness for us that we could not provide on our own, that, that even though we look around in society and we see in our own lives the, the great sin, the unrighteousness, the ungodliness, all the ways that we suppress the truth, we thank you that Jesus Christ lived a completely righteous and holy life, uh, that he was truth. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And that because of that, we have his righteousness to be able to approach you and to live with you forever in eternity. We pray that uh, that gospel message would uh, just uh, go out from this place to those who are around, to those who need to hear the good news of the gospel, that you would provide us opportunities to share that good news with those in our community, those that we work with, all those who were around, that you'd give us those uh, divine appointments and opportunities to share the gospel with others. We pray now that you go with us from this place and forgive us for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.